Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles, and today we get a closer look at Apple's iPhone recycling robot, Daisy. The MagSafe battery pack is a firmware update, allowing for faster charging, and we do a little home screen talk at the end of the show. This episode is brought to you by Dio Connect, Superbeats Heart Chews, Fast Growing Trees, and Truebill. You'll hear about our sponsors in a moment. And joining me this week is my friend across the states, not across the pond, Wes Hilliard. How's it going, Wes? Uh, pretty good, Stephen. Sorry, guys, I am not William. He is uh, indisposed, hunting uh, yeah. for a way to not watch Ted Lasso yet again. So That's right. He's working on his Wikipedia page. He wanted that thing to make him look even more famous than he right. is. See, Stephen mentioned his Wikipedia page last week, and now he's uh, he doesn't want to come on the show and talk about it. Right, that's exactly right. He's in the wind. No, no. no listeners, Fred not to William will be back. He'll be back soon. But real quick, let's do some five-star review shout-outs. we got a bunch of them again. Thank you for these. Keep them coming. Have someone from Tampa that's nearby me over in Central Florida, but Brian Garman from Tampa. He actually teaches at University of Tampa. Thank you for that. Alvaro Castro from Peru. International listener. That's awesome. Paco112 from USA. Alan TSB from the USA. Daz from Great Britain. Holg Lord from Chicago. And also in other internationals, we got Mateos Mac from Croatia. That's very cool. He's been listening since episode one. Very cool. Paul Eduk from Fenland Falls, Ontario, Canada. I know we got a bunch of listeners up there, so thank you all for those reviews. All right, I wanted to do some quick follow-up because we had some some emails and people write in. Number one, I'd be curious if you ever do this, Wes, like when you travel, what you bring to like play stuff on either the hotel TV or do you just watch on your devices? But Mark via email was asking, because we talked about captive networks connecting your Apple TV to a hotel Wi-Fi and things like that. And he asked, why don't you know maybe just bring an iPad with an HDMI adapter instead of a full Apple TV? And I will say for sure, like that is definitely an option. I've done that before when traveling. I think it just depends if you're staying someplace for an extended period of time. Sometimes it's nice just to have that Apple TV permanently connected for the four or five days you're doing vacation or whatever. Wes, I don't know if you bring in any special devices when you travel or try to connect to the TV, but what's your travel entertainment viewing situation? It really depends on uh, what I'm doing, where I'm going, and who I'm going with. If it's just me, if it's just for a short weekend, I don't usually expect to be in the hotel that much. I'm usually there for a reason, so I'm not spending much time in the hotel, so I'll usually do what I need to do, play Minecraft, whatever, on the iPad or whatever I have with me. If it's more for seeing friends or maybe we've got a cabin for the weekend or something, I'll take a whole Apple TV because those are very small and uh, you can just hook those up pretty easily. Much less overhead. It has all the streaming apps that I want and already have all the Jackbox games installed on it and stuff like that. So I don't have to really think about it. I I usually actually keep a multi-port adapter in uh, my go bag just because you never know when it might pop up that you might want to hook an iPad or even a Mac to a TV. Now the new MacBooks have HDMI, so I guess it's less necessary, but it's definitely useful if you're iPad only. Um, Even with the iPad mini, if you're going out for a short trip or something and you have the iPad mini and a multi-port adapter with you, that still works and you could get, you know, full output to TV, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's actually, I did that when I streamed the Super Bowl while camping. I talked about that back in February, I guess it was, but I did that with an iPad mini and a little adapter just because it was a little more easier to use kind of ongoing. I did eventually have to figure out how to plug in the iPad so it didn't die from battery while I was streaming. So you get different challenges here and there. Your mileage may vary. You know, choose the best situation. A lot of hotel uh, TVs have like software installed to prevent you from using uh, yes. HDMI switchers and stuff like that and like lock you into the cable box that they have installed. Eh, I won't say that you can get around that, but you can get around that. <laughs> yes. It's it's just, it's a pain. But uh, yeah, I, I'd say safest bet if you have an Apple TV, just take it with you. Not really a big deal. But uh, yeah, the iPad's absolutely a great option if you don't have uh, an Apple TV laying around. Yeah. Now we had a special episode come out this past Monday. Matthew Casanelli, he's now made his third appearance. We're going to say he now makes biannual appearances to talk about shortcuts and the current state of Apple's automation tools. We had a listener write in, Carl. He was asking about an automation I talked about where when you open the Photos app, you can set this up in the Shortcuts app, in the Automations tab. You can have an app open or close be a trigger for an automation. And I do that to trigger the orientation lock to turn off and on when I have photos open or closed. Basically, I keep my iPhone in rotation lock mode so it doesn't flip around if I'm in Safari or whatever. But when you go into the Photos app, a lot of times you want to be able to rotate it on its side so you can see a picture and landscape or if you hand your phone to someone and they try to rotate it themselves. And so I set up that automation where when I open the Photos app 
orientation lock turns off automatically without me even thinking about it. And then when I close the Photos app, just swiping up to go home, then rotation lock turns back on. And it's a little messy. You do kind of have to have two automations. You can do a toggle command, toggle orientation lock, but I've found that to be a little less consistent. But Carl was suggesting it would be great if there was a app state is open command, basically saying whenever this app is front and center on screen, that that would be a trigger for an automation. Fully agree. That would definitely make it a little easier, probably more consistent than having an app open or close, but that is not a trigger just yet. Maybe, hopefully WWDC will see some more triggers there. Right, that could definitely be something uh, with Mac OS because when you're dealing with a Mac, there's an active window. You could definitely have a shortcut run when something is an active window, but you really want something running every time you click on a window. So that's, I guess, a, a weird middle ground to ride. Uh, I'm sure Apple will figure something out there. But yeah. so you're, you're one of these people that has rotation lock on all the time? Absolutely. I specifically go out of my way to turn it on if I need it, but like I never have it on. Oh, no, no. See, I guess, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's in bed, you really right. feel it. Like if you're actually laying in bed and you want to like look at Safari, it's going to try and rotate and that's, I want it locked. But honestly, I never want it rotating ever. And the YouTube app, like that's the one place. And the, like if I'm going to watch, I don't know, a show on HBO Max or Apple TV Plus, those are the times I want it horizontal. And it automatically does that even with orientation lock locked. So I just leave it locked all the time. And photos is the one time I want it to unlock. So yeah, you know what hurts my feelings? I see so many people just not care and they'll just watch a whole video and portrait, but it's a landscape oh, video yeah. or like in YouTube, they'll just leave it, you know, vertically oriented and have the 5% of the screen be the video and just watch an entire five minute video that way. And I'm just like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I see that too. I'll say I've been guilty of it. Only when I'm like using the phone while watching something. A picture in picture in YouTube has been working for me for a while now. I know that was last week. It was kind of like, is YouTube going to enable this or not? But it's been working for me. And so I'll start a YouTube video. One that I really want to just hear what they say more than watch them because they're really just doing a talking head type video. And for that, I'll leave it in portrait and then I'll swipe up and try to do other things. Although I will say it is actually very difficult to navigate an iPhone with a big picture in picture playing at the same time. So I don't know how often that will be useful. Yeah, the picture in picture is interesting though because you can pop out a video just to make sure it keeps playing and then hide it behind, like to the edge of the right. screen. So that does come in handy. I'm not a heavy YouTube watcher. We know this, so I don't really, I'm not too <laughs> sure. overly concerned. And if you do use YouTube, just just use the browser. It's better anyway. I mean, open it, open Ew, YouTube and Safari. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the app has gotten better. And what's annoying is like when you're browsing your social media, whether it's Twitter or something else, and you tap a YouTube link, it does not go to the YouTube app a lot of times naturally. Like it tries to load it in whatever in-app browser, and then you're not signed into your account. So you can't really click watch later because then you have to log in. That's what I run into more. And so I created a shortcut that basically when I click a YouTube link in Twitter, I can hit the share button and there's an open in YouTube command which will fling me over to the YouTube app because then I'm, I'm logged in, it's in my account and I can do watch later, I can like or comment. And so for if you do a lot of YouTube or click a lot of YouTube links, you might want to think about doing that kind of shortcut just because I don't know, YouTube just, it doesn't naturally open the app as often as I'd like. Fairly certain that there's a Safari extension for this somewhere. Someone has to have oh. made it. And there's also those other apps like Pipifier and stuff like that, that probably also just have extensions that automatically, like someone has done this, I, I'm sure. I, I don't think it violates any terms of service or anything where they probably take control of YouTube and do certain things with it when you click on certain links. So that's just something worth looking into. I don't mm. know for sure, but I'm, I'm, I feel like that's a thing. That's a, that's a good point. Listeners, if you have any YouTube extensions that you've been using, tweet at us. I'd like, I'd like to know uh, what you're using there. So I wanted to mention this real quick. The MagSafe battery pack, which came out almost a year ago, it was last summer. There's actually been a firmware update, which doesn't sound super exciting, but it has actually increased the speed of charging of that MagSafe battery pack and now charges at 7.5 watts, which is not fast by any means, but it will charge faster than it has been. It is firmware number 2.7.B.0, which is hilarious. But if you want to see what firmware your MagSafe battery pack has, you go to the settings app, general, about, and you'll see MagSafe battery pack. You do have to have it connected to your iPhone for it to be there. But one of the things I saw in our article is that it could take up to a week for the MagSafe battery pack to update its firmware. And this just made me think, I 
really wish that Apple would build in like a force update firmware across products that they just expect to update automatically. I think of AirPods, even up to AirPods Max, there's no way to force a firmware update. MagSafe battery pack, also AirTag, all these things just kind of update and there's no actual instructions on how to do it. It's just like, yeah, just wait a week and it'll update at some point. And I just wish there was a, I like a button that just says update now, but that's just my preference. Steven, there are dozens of us who want this, at least dozens. So (laughs) I'm sure Apple is uh, looking into that for you. I get the convenience of the automatic update, but it's just like, you know, faster charging. If I was traveling tomorrow, let's say, and I want to bring my MagSafe battery pack, I would love for it to have this faster charging firmware update, but there's just no way to like phone update. So you're, so you're creating a smaller and smaller demographic. It might even be one person. It might even be you who wants this. <laughs> it's just uh, me. Just it's you. just me. I agree. I think some of these should have uh, update buttons, obviously, or better management. I mean, you know, if iPad or, you know, iPhone had a terminal that, that you could give commands to anyway, uh, just <laughs> that, you know, of all the things, sideloading has <laughs> come before there's some kind of terminal command. Right, right. right. I've, I've, I've seen people, I, I, I joke, I promise I don't want a terminal on my iPad, but I've seen people say it's like, legitimately they want uh shell scripts and stuff on ipad and i'm like man i i don't i don't know i don't see it i mean it's just way too in the weeds uh for something that's supposed to be a consumer device i know they make one with pro in the name but it's still this isn't that but yeah magsafe battery pack it was five watts i believe previously now it's 7.5 so that's cool i i don't know why it wasn't that originally unless they just wanted to see these things in the field and see how people are using them. And now they probably realize like, Oh, we can, we can do this safely without causing any damage or any problems or overheating. So, exactly. I mean, when it's plugged in, it's 15 Watts. So it's not like the thing's going to catch on fire. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And I will say I've actually used it more often recently because it's so thin and light. There've been times where I'm home, it's late in the day and my phone is getting to like that 15 to 20%. And I could just plug it in, but I'm actually still doing things with my phone. And it's been kind of nice just to like slap the MagSafe battery pack on there. It doesn't add a ton of weight. It's very secure, which is one thing. I have the Anchor one that has like a little phone stand and I really like it, but it is much heavier and it does not feel as secure on the back. And the MagSafe battery pack does feel better. So my my opinion of it is slowly improving over time. I think it's still a little overpriced at $99, but I like it. Steven, do you have a bespoke case for your MagSafe battery pack? No, these things exist? Well, yeah, I hate that it's a solid white mass on the back of my phone. So I got a little, uh, I guess it's rubber material case that just fits around the thing doesn't really add any thickness or weight to it and it yep now it's a black MagSafe battery pack is that did you get the nomad one no uh, this existed before i i ordered this like a day after somehow they got the dimensions i guess immediately and they made these things in in bulk and sold it for a dollar uh on amazon and i've had this thing forever i do want one of the nomad ones that uh, i think andrew got one and said they're pretty nice it's yeah. those are actual leather i think and much nicer yes. so that's pretty funny well what 30 dollar case for your $99 battery thing. Yeah. It's a $30 piece of leather that fits around the battery pack. Yes. yes. All right. Well, real quick, I want to mention that Sarah Dietschy, creative YouTuber and does a lot of tech videos. She actually had a special video where she got an inside look at Daisy, which is Apple's iPhone recycling robot. She was at an undisclosed location in Texas and she got to actually film some of the things that Daisy does, this robot that takes apart iPhones and the recycling process. It was pretty incredible. I will link to the video and our article covering it. It was wild to see how quickly this robot separates an iPhone screen from its chassis. I mean, it's just seconds. Thing just takes the screen off. It uses cold air, shoots it into the phone after the screen is off to loosen the adhesive for the battery. So they remove the battery because that can't be recycled. And then the final bit of the recycling process, there is a human sorting because that's one of the challenges with recycling. If you ever watched like recycling documentary, there's lots of different kinds of metals and different kinds of plastics. And if they all get jumbled together, it becomes much less efficient and even impossible to actually recycle that material in mass. And so there's a human component to separate some of those pieces. And then at the end of the video, you see just like these huge bins 
of what looks like iPhone fives and iPhone sixes. You just see the back aluminum. It's all like bent and all this kind of stuff because it went through the machine. But pretty cool to see that whole recycling process in action. I mean, it has to provide something, right? Like, does it save time? Is it efficient? Because the, this machine is not small by any means. It's like uh, the size of a like school bus I'm taking apart one iPhone, yeah. uh, five different modules. And it was pretty impressive to see. I'm, I'm assuming, yes, like uh, just because from a labor standpoint, it would be quickly exhausting to just pop a screen off an iPhone every minute. And we only saw one go through. I'm assuming that they can lay 20 of these things in, in the starting bin and just have it go at it and come back in 10 minutes and you got a pile of iPhone parts to sort through. I'm, automating this definitely makes sense. It is. It just was a little funny to me that there's still a human component to this. Like, can you not sort those things by weight? A lot of these uh, industrial machines use like the, the uh, spinning thing uh, that we saw midway through to sling off the parts at different times based on their weight because physics and uh, that normally helps but i guess there uh, there would just be a final component where some person has to go through by hand and, and sort these out but if you do this day in and day out for months at a time it becomes second nature where you could probably be sleeping while you're doing it so i don't feel too bad about it but i just wouldn't want to do that job <laughs> it can appear right it can apparently do 200 iphones per hour Jeez, 200 okay. iphones per hour it can it can disassemble which is pretty good and that was one of the other things in the video uh, Sarah was saying one of the challenges they had initially was getting the screws out of the iPhone. The machine could not be precise enough to actually put like a screwdriver bit and unscrew the screws consistently. And so they basically changed the method to bang the screws out of the chassis, basically. Well, they realized like, why are we trying to save these screws in the chassis? We're just right. throwing these things in a melting pot and starting over. So just hammer right. those things out of there. Yeah. Yeah. The brute force method. So it's pretty, pretty wild. I'll put a article to Apple's newsroom article too. This was back from 2018, but I just, I like the undisclosed location in Texas part. Like, you know, like they're at a secret base or something. Yeah. I, I just wonder like, is there not a town that someone lives in that they drive by and there's a giant Apple logo on the side of the building? Or is this one of their, mm. Apple does own a lot of shell companies where they have secret names on the outside of the building just so they can stay hidden. So th this might be one of those guys, but. Right. Well, and seeing some of the footage from inside the factory that Sarah had, like, it's very nondescript. Like yeah. if you were just standing in that warehouse, if you didn't see any iPhone parts, it would just look like a normal factory. Well, that big blue thing tells me that they obviously bought some recycling plant somewhere and stuck Daisy inside of it. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which it looks like Daisy's just kind of like sitting on the floor in the middle of this factory. It's <laughs> what if they trucked Daisy in from the actual site to obfuscate where the real factory <gasps> oh. is and told her this was the factory. <laughs> it's a double blind. I see. <laughs> yes. Anyway, it's a fun video to watch. And yeah, just seeing those screens come off the iPhone is wild. This episode is brought to you by Dio Connect. Guys, I'm so excited because Dio Connect is an affordable AirPlay 2 speaker that doesn't have any kind of microphone or smart assistant built in. So it has your privacy and security in mind, but it has the AirPlay 2 functionality that I love. I mean, you can pair as many AirPlay 2 speakers around your house as you would like. You can play to all of them, program some of them. You can use them in shortcuts. And this is the most affordable AirPlay 2 speaker yet. You can actually get it right now if you support their Indiegogo campaign for just $79 a speaker. You really can't find AirPlay 2 speakers for that cost. Or you can get three for $199, which is awesome. It's plug and play. There's no separate app that you need to set it up. And because it works with AirPlay 2, it will play nice with all of your other AirPlay 2 speakers. And plus, AirPlay 2 is way better than things like Bluetooth, especially if you have multiple people all trying to play music at the same time or take turns. You have to disconnect and unpair a device, reconnect it via Bluetooth. But with AirPlay 2, everyone can access these speakers right from the control center. Go to dioconnect.com slash Apple Insider, and you can pre-order these Dio Connect speakers right there. They launched pre-orders earlier this month, but they're ending in just two weeks. So you got to hurry. You get a special discount of 17% off, which ends then in two weeks. And they're also giving out 35% off on future Dio nodes to everyone who pre-orders. Plus, they're making a special edition speaker for those who pre-order. So check it out, Dio Connect. That's D-I-O Connect dot com slash apple insider and order some of these awesome airplay 2 speakers before time runs out that's dioconnect.com slash apple insider our thanks to dio connect for sponsoring this episode and for super beats heart shoes listen as we get older as we age there's fatigue there's lack of endurance you can't fix everything with more caffeine which is heartbreaking because i, I try to fix a lot of things with caffeine i love my cold brew but it's not the answer for everything so this is a new way to start your day with Super Beats Heart Chews. They're tasty little 
cube. It reminds me of a Starburst. And honestly, I think it tastes better than a Starburst. And it gives you more energy and they're actually good for you. So no more afternoon coffees or energy drinks. You just add two delicious plant-based Super Beats heart shoes to your morning routine. Promotes heart-healthy energy throughout your day without that caffeine crash. I do experience that as well when I have my caffeine. The Super Beats heart shoes are unique because they are clinically researched with grapeseed extract as part of a healthy lifestyle. I'll be honest, I've actually been eating the little Super Beats heart shoes for a number of months now. I like they do give me that little bit of energy, especially in the afternoon. And I love knowing that they're actually good for me, good for my heart health. And I think you should try them too. The grapeseed extract used in Super Beats heart shoes has been clinically shown to be two times as effective as supporting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. So do more for your heart and treat yourself with Super Beats heart shoes. For Apple Insider listeners only, you can get up to 45% off plus free shipping at superbeats.com slash Apple Insider. That's super, like Superman, S-U-P-E-R, beats, B-E-E-T-S, like the vegetable, superbeats.com slash Apple Insider. This is their best offer available anywhere. That's superbeats.com slash Apple Insider for up to 45% off at superbeats.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Superbeats for sponsoring this episode. All right, iPhone 14 rumor time. There's not a ton of rumors out there, but Kuoming Chi, he's been saying some stuff. You know, he's on Twitter now, so we hear from him a little more often. A lot of his tweets start with the words, I think, which when it comes to like leaker reliability, it feels a little bit like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to see a bunch of tweets that says, I think this is happening. But Kuoming Chi says that the front facing camera on the iPhone 14 would be one of the big updates of this year, could go from an F2.2 to a 1.9, so it lets in more light. and that the front-facing camera on iPhone could get autofocus this year, which even up till now, even the iPhone 13 Pro, it is a fixed-focus front-facing camera. So it would be adding autofocus to that front-facing camera. And this rumor we've heard several times that the back camera could go up to a 48-megapixel sensor up from the 12-megapixel that we have now and that we've had for quite a number of years. That's the, the biggest thing that we've heard about iPhone 14. Oh, and there's been physical models leaked Images posted by Weibo. We actually got this last year with the iPhone 12, and these models were accurate to the body style. It doesn't tell you a lot about the phone, but it does show the iPhone 14 lineup, 14 and 14 Pro. And namely, there is no mini model amongst this lineup, which were rumors we heard last year that the 13 mini might be the last mini we ever see from apple so i don't know what do you think about these wes so ming chi quo man i don't know what he's doing anymore it, i'm sure he still works at tf securities and he releases these things but the, the tweets are are insane I, are these not details that he would prefer to share and yeah i don't know it's weird. newsletters like I, i'm assuming i'm assuming that it's just not good enough to actually put in the newsletter and he can't stand by it so it's more of a this is an opinion or this is a i i can't put my brand behind this but this is me saying it i would take the tweets a little less seriously than maybe his uh newsletter but the sure. autofocus that's interesting uh i'm seeing a fun combination of technologies coming together because technically speaking the selfie camera is already capable of a wider field of view it's not ultra wide but it's wider than apple's wide angle camera remember if you combine a wide view, like an ultra wide view camera with autofocus, you get macro mode. So we're going to get macro eyeball shots with the selfie camera. Right. <laughs> so that'll be interesting. I, I don't think Apple introduced the feature, but we, I like just by accident, um, I'm sure we'll get some very close autofocus, which will be very interesting for certain things that you might want to try. Uh, maybe makeup artists will be able to yeah. take advantage of this. I don't know. Oh, that would, that would be cool. I imagine, I mean, TikTok. Oh yeah. You know, they're always, they'll, they'll use well, any of that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. And then the 48 megapixel pixel sensor we've seen this multiple times on the rear the rear wide angle camera only one camera is going to have this i'm pretty sure certain that this is happening now i mean at this point you can probably go on sony's web website and see the exact module they're going to be using just and it's probably already in mass production who knows but uh yeah. it, it's pretty much going to happen now and um i think it, it's going to be a big step forward for apple and uh the iPhone photography, I think it's going to make it be a big deal just because um, pixel bending can do a lot for us. Like they can literally just assign, say, uh, a quarter of the pixels to just focus pixels and then a, another quarter of the pixels just to getting color accuracy, you know, and then still take right. a full 12 megapixel photo identical to what you would get before, but have all of this extra information to add to the machine learning and get like precise detail and denoise and, uh, because there are other cameras out there, like I can't remember uh, HTC or one of these 
brands that had like a do you remember like how people were really crazy about some of these windows phone cameras um, oh yes the lumia had like a crazy lens and it was just massive it, it, it was like a dual lens system it was one of the first cameras to do it and uh they actually pioneered this technique where they would take a like i don't know 50 megapixel black and white photo and then colorize it using like a five megapixel color image they were able to get a lot of detail out of that because they weren't relying on all these color capture in the in the larger sensor or whatever so yeah. apple could do a lot of this just with pixel bending so I'm, I'm i'm excited to see how they handle it and when you mentioned that windows phone now i'm also reminded htc used to do some crazy stuff i remember they had a supposed 3d screen technology where you could see quote unquote 3d without glasses then they also had a dual camera system to capture supposed 3d images and i remember i actually had a friend get one of those phones and it was like one of those weird like hologram type things where you know you move it back and forth and it looks like something's kind of popping out a little bit well, the nintendo 3ds did this um oh they used, that's right yeah they used parallax screens to basically create the 3d effect uh yes it was very broken but it worked at times and it was kind of interesting i wonder just the features like that where they get all the hype in the moment and then inevitably people are like when will apple implement right. 3d photography and then it's like Oh, actually, that was just a gimmick, and it's probably good that Apple never even tried. Well, I wonder stuff like what is like that today. Like, is folding phones one of those things? Well, not to get too much on a tangent, unless you just this, because I, I, I find this interesting. Like, if you look at the timeline between just smartphones in general, you know, it's it's the old age old joke of everything looked like this until the iPhone, then they looked like iPhones. Uh, well, that's, a you know, that culminated in about 2010. Well, you know, from 2010 to 2014, they were kind of just solidified in, we're going to be these rectangle bar things with screens that you can touch. Right. But then we started getting the crazy stuff. And we started seeing the Windows phones. We started seeing Samsung uh, do eye tracking and all of this stuff that people are like, why isn't Apple doing any of this? And then a year later, it disappeared again. Right. I think these come in cycles right now, because I know there's Android people out there saying, you know, what about this phone? Uh, you know, there's 30,000 different Chinese companies making these crazy phones. I, I follow yeah. a few leakers that leak Apple stuff, but they're mostly Android people. So I, I, I see a lot of these like Android phones that are coming out in China and just these other places that will probably never even get sold in us markets but they have uh, right. just 40 cameras on the back and their screens are 8k and can film and uh you know they're still doing this but it's such a like i think people got tired of it i think they got tired of the gimmicky nature of a lot of these things and i think a lot of the gimmicks are just bad so we don't hear about it as often and they're not <laughs> being sold in the u.s i mean the the that's right. the problem with these monopoly powers is uh before we like everyone would sell all these weird crazy phones to catch attention but now it's basically just samsung selling the same rectangle in, in five different colors so right i also remember just to close the tangent is 3d stuff not only was it in phones, but I remember 3D televisions were huge. And I was actually working at Circuit City around this time when 3D was starting to come out and you had to buy, you know, active 3D glasses for like $100 a pair to go with your 3D TV. And I remember watching one one time. Someone actually had a 3D TV in their house, all the glasses. And it was like, A, I feel a little nauseous after 20 minutes and B, like, this is not good. And every TV manufacturer was trying to sell it. And if you go to Best Buy today, not a single 3D TV will be there. And so Steven, I was an early adopter of 3D TV. Really? I was in the military and I and I was in the nuclear field so and single so of course I had just money to burn. I went to the Navy Exchange and thankfully tax free, but oh god, I I hate to even admit it. <laughs> I bought one of the first Sony 55-inch 3D televisions. Whoa. In 4K in like 2013 20 like this was nascent technology at the time Act that was not cheap yeah active glasses you know came with like six pairs yes. of active glasses so the glasses had to be charged and turned right. on with you know or, or no, no 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 they were like cell batteries but anyway five thousand dollars for this television <laughs> i wow. hate it i hate that i did that <laughs> and of course at the time i was still in my like experimental phase for technology i was trying everything so yes a couple years into owning that i saw the samsung's tvs with uh, passive glasses and i was like you know i want to i want to check those guys out so i sold that tv for much less than i should have probably like half the price i paid for it someone bought it so uh, there you go yeah, and i got yeah. the samsung tv 
at the time, which was still like $2,000. And yeah, I, I invested heavily. Uh, I bought 3D Blu-rays. The PS3 was capable yes. of playing 3D Blu-rays. And uh <sighs> It was it was fun. Wow. Like I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. Active was awful, uh, but um, passive definitely was a lot better because active made you actively sick. I think is where the name comes from. <laughs> but yeah, my 3D adventures ended with uh, the gosh. I wish I still had this thing. The very tiny 24 inch Sony television that looked like a playstation portable hmm. it was one of the early market entries into portable televisions for your playstation and i could fit this thing no kidding in my locker on the ship on deployment and i took it with me with my playstation so i could set up this tv in my bed you know and ask people in the military these beds are tiny you cannot <laughs> uh, sit up in them but i i managed to steal a top rack so i could sit up set up a little TV in my bed and play the PS3 in my rack with 3D glasses. And now it was so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that's next level though. That's, that's committed. I was that kind of nerd guys. That's I, awesome. I may that's still awesome. be, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's hiding somewhere deep beneath the surface, right? The, the 3D PS3 in your bunk bed. That's awesome. It was ridiculous. So child safety and messages. This was a feature that Apple launched to great controversy and stuff. This was when all the CSAM and child safety and messages was announced. We'll get to CSAM in a second, but child safety and messages where if a child receives an inappropriate image or an image containing nudity will be blurred out on their side. If they try to send one, there'll be a warning that comes up saying they probably shouldn't. This is a feature that is actually on and available here in the U.S., if you have a child iCloud account that's in your family and you have screen time settings set up, you can opt in. All of this is opt in. It does not do it automatically, but there is a communication safety tab there in screen time and you can turn this on. Check for sensitive photos is the toggle. And it's now expanding to the UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. So this feature will be coming there. But I thought this was interesting because there's actually still no word on the CSAM image scanning. I know Apple does not want to use the word scanning, but that's kind of what all the headlines said. So that's scanning the iCloud photo library for images, matching it with the database and all that. That was the most controversial aspect of all the child safety features that Apple announced. And people still conflate with the iMessage feature. And it's still conflated. You know, it was there was three distinct parts to the child safety thing. There was the CSAM and the iCloud photo library, which is still not launched and we've not heard any word on since. There's the child safety and messages that will blur incoming photos and outgoing warning. And then there's the third where is Siri and search, where if you search for things that fall under this child safety category, there will be, you know, different results that come up like, you know, here's phone numbers for assistance and things like that. But notably, CSAM and the iCloud photo library scanning is one of those things that we still have not heard anything about since Apple announced that they will be delaying that feature. That happened in the fall about six to eight months ago, and we've just not gotten any word on that. Or have we gotten word on the repair program that Apple said would be launching early this year, which I think we're past the early part. It's going to be May soon. So curious that we've not heard about either of those two things from Apple in the last several months. Well, let's take a few steps back because I want to address a couple of these. The messages feature, uh, I, I know our listeners are smart, but just to recap, it's basically 13 and up because uh, Apple doesn't really let you. I mean, I guess you can have a child account for kids under 13, but you, I don't even think you can turn this feature on unless they're you over the age of 13. Is it? Both my kids are under 13 right now, and that communication safety is available for both. Okay, things. okay. Because I, I think I, if I remember correctly, because this feature's changed several times, I think it was originally meant just for a certain age group, but uh, not, okay, right. that makes sense anyway. I think it was you could get noti parents could be notified if a photo is received or sent up to age 13. That's and it. then when they were older than 13, there would be no notification sent to parents. And right now they changed that no notification is sent to parents either way. This is completely isolated to the person's device. So Correct. it's a child account. So anyone under the age of 18 receives or sends an image, basically an algorithm a la uh, machine learning, yeah, machine, yeah. machine learning. Yeah. Like, uh, like I, I always like going back to Silicon Valley's not a hot dog, uh, hot dog or not a hot dog app. If you ever watch that Correct. TV show, yes. similarly, it's just looking at images local to the device and it's deciding there's nude bits in here. We're going to warn the sender or receiver. There's nudity in the image. Uh, are you sure about this? You know, and here's
here's some resources if you need help. No one else knows about it. No one's ever said anything. And Apple does not see the photos yep. either. It's all local. So theoretically, you could just, the, the, the person involved in this could just say, no, go on. No one ever knows. The parents never know. Nothing happens. Uh, but it is just a resource for, you know, educating them because maybe they don't realize maybe that, that that's just something that hasn't fully set in or they need that last little push of, oh, I probably shouldn't be doing this or I shouldn't be looking at this. It's, it's just a, a safety precaution. Like, you know, why sure. shouldn't you be doing this? So again, we have not heard about the CSAM stuff. We'll see if that ever comes about, but those in the UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia will have the option to enable it. And once again, it is opt in. It is not enabled by default. I think the CSAM stuff, I know a lot of people are like, oh, Apple, you know, got scared here and ran away. Again, I don't think what they were ever doing was, I mean, they maybe overstepped or or didn't expect this reaction. Sure, like those those are valid opinions, but I think Apple is still very much in earnest in trying to set this up and get it into a system eventually, maybe much more open, much more, much better communication about it. But right. no one's forcing their hand yet. Uh, there's still a lot of laws uh, going into effect eventually that will force Apple's hand and every other company. Uh, most companies already do this type of stuff just in the server. And Apple's solution is to try and preserve people's privacy by not doing it in the server, by doing it on their device. But again, that comes into the question of, is it something that you should be doing on people's devices? Does it open the door to other you know, countries inserting things into these into these systems to scan for terrorism, for example, or something like that. So right. there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered, but I don't I don't think this has gone away. I'm sure we'll hear something about it once Apple gets all of their other uh, protections in place and they're able to talk about this clearly and separately, which they should have done in the first place. Yeah. And I think this also might coincide and there were some thoughts about this is the iCloud backup encryption that Apple is working on, right. which right now certain aspects of your iCloud data is encrypted. Like your iMessages are encrypted when they are sent and received from your phone. But if your iMessages are backed up in an iCloud backup, that iCloud backup is not yet encrypted. So technically your messages could be seen there if some government agency asked for the backup file from iCloud. And one of the things Apple is working towards is for those iCloud backups of your devices to be totally encrypted as well. So those also could not be accessed and there's no back door. So I imagine that if and when CSAM does come back into the limelight and Apple announces that they are making the feature live, I think it will coincide with some of that iCloud backup encryption as well. So Apple can say, look, we are protecting our users' data even more. And that's why we're doing CSAM in this way. Yeah. Give users a, not maybe not an incentive. That's not the right word, but like at least a reason why they're doing it. Um, some, something more than Correct. here's this thing and goodbye. We're not telling you anything else. And uh, that was just very poorly managed. Yeah. And, and it should not be a press release. Like, yeah. like I think Craig Federighi or somebody needs to get in a video and explain it for 12 minutes or something. Yeah. To round it all the way back, the repair program. I agree. It's odd that we're not hearing about it, but I think again, this, likely lies in the world situation we're dealing with the supply chain may as well not exist mm -hmm. right now you can go to the That's store true. and there's just things missing that otherwise shouldn't be right. and getting massive amounts of parts uh, located around the country if not the world to supply people to do self-repair and stuff it, i don't think it's just a tenable thing right now like it, it would be great and this would have probably been out months ago yeah if not for covid but uh you know a lot of people Maybe if they're not keeping up with the news, maybe if they're uh, just not fully involved with this, but this, this stuff is, it's really going on. It's still, right. it's still very much there. COVID is uh, driving the narrative behind the supply chain and how and when things ship and like even just truck drivers moving things across the country is very difficult right now. So I couldn't imagine the struggle Apple's happen having right now with trying to get something like this off the ground, which requires very strong supply chain response. So We'll see. Right, for sure. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fast Growing Trees. I love when this sponsor comes around because you would not think to hear about trees and plants on a tech podcast. But listen, it's getting towards the summertime. Hopefully you're going to be spending more time outdoors or maybe just on your patio. Maybe you're going to have pool parties and barbecues. Well, it'd be nice if your yard actually looks lively and has some great foliage around, maybe even gives you some like fruit and peppers and stuff. Well, fast-growing trees will deliver those plants, bushes, and shrubs right to your door. You don't have to worry about getting your car all messy, trying to get a plant from your local hardware store. 
because you can order online and your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. Plus, they have growing and care advice that's available for 24-7. And because I'm in Central Florida, they actually tell you what plants will thrive in your environment. That's a big deal. So you know the plants and trees you're getting will survive and thrive. So whether you're looking for privacy, shade, or adding some natural beauty to your yard, fast-growing trees has the perfect plants and expertise to help you find them. And listen, I don't have a green thumb. I have whatever the opposite of a green thumb is where I will pretty much guarantee that plants will die in my presence. But we have had a fast-growing tree for months now here in Florida, and it's still alive and it's thriving. It's actually a persimmon tree, and we actually got a Carolina Reaper pepper tree, which is a lot of fun. Me and my son like to eat some hot pepper stuff. And so we got the Carolina Reaper tree. We actually ate a pepper off it just the other day. Yes, it was pretty hot, but we loved it. And Fast Growing Trees has a 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, so you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. So go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash Apple Insider right now, and you'll get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash Apple Insider. That link is also in the show notes. You can just click it there, fastgrowingtrees.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Fast Growing Trees and our friends at Truebill. Listen, we all have a lot of subscriptions we pay for. Maybe it's app subscriptions, streaming services. You probably picked up some of those along the way. And a lot of times we forget to cancel those free trial subscriptions and end up paying every month for a long time until we catch it and cancel it. Well, Truebill is a new app that will help you identify and stop paying for those subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. And because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You can actually link your accounts with Truebill. They use Plaid so you know it's private and secure. They will actually help you cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. Yes, they will handle canceling them. You have a Truebill concierge and they're there when you need them to cancel those unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. I love Truebill. I've been using it. And like I mentioned before, they're the first ones that told me my storage unit went up in monthly cost. Before even the storage unit told me, Truebill notified me that they charged me more than the month before. And that's the kind of awesome feature you can get from Truebill. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped them save over $100 million. That's a big deal. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. Go right now, Truebill, T-R-U-E, Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. Go to our link and it can save you thousands a year. And that link is also in the show notes. Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Truebill for sponsoring this episode. So in Europe, there is an internal market and consumer protection committee, and they've actually recently voted 43 to 2 in favor of forcing USB-C to be a standard port on all smartphones sold in Europe. Now, this vote actually has to go to one more level, the European Parliament in May of this year, May 2022, which is just next month as you listen to it. But this could be approaching that Apple would be forced to put a USB-C connector on iPhone. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Again, there's been lots of speculation. Will Apple ever do this? I was hopeful in the iPhone 12 and 13 era, but now I am less inclined to think that Apple would ever put USB-C on the iPhone unless they were forced to with some policy like this. Also, another caveat to that though is Apple actually does differ what comes in an iPhone box depending on what country that iPhone is sold in at times. For instance, if you buy an iPhone in France, France has a law where you must include headphones with every smartphone purchase. And so if you buy an iPhone in France, there are actually still EarPod headphones in the box, which is not the case, as you know, if you bought an iPhone 12 or 13, Apple stopped including those headphones to most iPhones sold elsewhere. They're not even in the box. They're strapped to a box outside of the box. Uh, like it's oh, okay. like a rubber band <laughs> okay. that's holding the two boxes together. Like a backpack. <laughs> yeah, they're not okay. yeah, they're not squeezing it in that little It's not in the yeah. box. But they are forced to include it. You know, it's not any extra force. And if I, I mean correct me if I'm wrong, it's something we'll have to look into. I think that's going away. I think France realized that's ridiculous. Oh, really? Um because I think the original um, reason this existed was because uh, they didn't they wanted to ensure that there was a hands free communication device included in the box that would allow people to talk on the phone while driving without you know right. causing safety issues and um i think they re- woke up one day and realized oh uh bluetooth and every other technology exists this is a really dumb thing i think it's either being repealed or has been repealed but uh, uh not something okay. i've looked into recently so well i'm curious then this policy about USB-C. I know there was some talk, I'm not confident in this, but that Apple could get around this by not having any port on the device. 
you know, there's also wireless charging policies in Europe, but Apple already supports Qi charging. That's already pretty universal. And so maybe there's a way to get around it by not including any port at all. But there's a few things going on here with this. Uh, first of all, um, the language is unclear, but uh, if you dig into it, it's not that they voted this into law. They voted that they're okay with this policy being put into law. Therefore, now they're going to vote on the language of the law. Like it's right. there's we're, this is step two of 500. And, uh, <laughs> okay, you know, it, okay. yeah, like if you look into this, like it could take years. I think it even says in our article, it could take literal years before even USB-C is approved. So by the time this is approved right. as a universal standard, uh, there will be already the next thing. And they actually work a clause into whatever final law there is to say that this can be superseded by a new technology because this has happened before oh. uh, Europe, actually the EU, I'm, I can't, I can't give you a year, but it was, it was something ridiculous like 2013 uh, in an argument that started in like 2008. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like they've, they passed a thing in 2013 saying that every phone should have micro USB, but at that, but it right. could be superseded by a new technology at the time Apple moved from the 30 pin to lightning and therefore it was a new technology. Oh. So they were able to get around that. And I, I think the same thing's about to happen here. And this, this whole thing is crazy because they want to, they have language that says they want to, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, standardize magnetic charging systems, but the, right. then everyone shrugs and says, isn't it already? So th there's a lot of stuff in here that, you know, I, I'll, I'll emulate William here and just say it's, it's, it's rubbish. Um, and we'll, <laughs> thank you. Yes. Yeah. And we'll, we'll see, we'll see, uh, where we end up in about 2030 when they finally get a final vote <sighs> on this. So. so what you're telling me is, we are still never going to see USB-C on an iPhone. Oh, absolutely not. No, by the time this is even in question, <laughs> Apple will be three chargers down the road, if not no charger with MagSafe uh, data transfer. So we'll, we'll see. All right. Oh, well. I mean, I'm, I'm over it. I mean, I basically charge with MagSafe everywhere. If I want a fast charge, I do use the Lightning. But I mean, there are some phones now, some Android phones that can wirelessly charge at ridiculously high rates you know, like 60 to 80 watts. Someone posted, it's like, here's a phone, like Vivo something or other, uh, that can charge wired at like 50 watts and wirelessly at 35 watts or something. And I just posted right. the picture of, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I, it could have been anything, but if I saw it right, I think it's the picture of Jason from Friday the 13th on fire walking across the screen. So <laughs> I'm sure the technology yeah. works, but man, I... I don't know if that's a lithium ion battery, those things are going to last two months at 50 Watts. Like I know we talked about last week. Don't worry yeah. about it. You know, we did. wireless charging is fine, yeah. but there is a breaking point here where you are, it, these things get so hot that you're damaging the cells that to it, a point of no return. And I'm just wondering what 50 Watts looks like, you know, that's crazy. Yeah. And I will say, I will link again, MKBHD had a video about this and some phone manufacturers are doing things like instead of one big battery, which trying to charge one big battery fast brings the heat level higher. And so you run the risk of that kind of stuff. They'll actually put two batteries as close to the size as the one and charging two batteries at a slightly slower pace gives you an overall fast charge. So I don't know. It's, it's complicated. So it's like, it's like pixel bending yeah. for batteries. If you have 15 batteries and they're all charging at five Watts, it's technically, you know, 75 watts or whatever. I'd Something like that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll include that video again. It was an interesting video. Again, for the most part, if you're charging with anything lightning or MagSafe, you're still fine. So you don't, you don't have to stress. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the existing Apple technology, you're safe. If you're buying some phone from China, I cannot tell you what is safe or what is not. Exactly. Uh, especially the ones that charge through radio frequencies in the air. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. I don't want to mention this. There was a bunch of video editors that wrote an open letter to Apple CEO Tim Cook talking about talking about Final Cut in the professional video arena. The letter opened with some praise for Final Cut saying it's the, quote, biggest leap forward in editing technology since the move to digital. So there's a lot of high praise for Final Cut as video editing software. But these video production people are basically saying that Apple needs to advertise and push it more into the professional market because Final Cut is still not used in professional film and TV. It's actually not a accepted form of editing for like Netflix's production standards. And there's some features that are still missing that is sorely needed in professional workplaces, such as collaboration 
which is something that the Adobe Suite and even DaVinci Resolve does well, where multiple people can work on the same project at the same time. Final Cut does not have those kinds of features. And so this letter is basically pushing Apple to say, hey, make Final Cut that real professional tool we want it to be because it has the kind of features and UI and we love using it, but it needs to be pushed more from Apple's side. I thought this was interesting. I love Final Cut. And I think Final Cut is really used in a lot of individual creative content people. But when it comes to those professional production houses for TV and film, it still just doesn't have those few things that they need to make it their default tool. Yeah, I didn't do the legwork here and it would probably be too much for one person to attempt to it would take like months to figure this out, but this is a petition on like petition.com that 288 right. signatures were applied. It just has names and locations like Scott from Nashville. Uh, this could very much be a like bubble issue where these 200 people got together and said, wow, you know, Apple really needs to do more and advertise stuff and talk to professionals when they already do. I mean, from what we understand from Apple, from what they've said, from what like companies like Pixar and other major distributors have talked about like the people like uh, in the film industry uh, we saw what was it there was something made that was like a real movie not not Pixar anyway the, like just so yeah. many of these large industries talking about how amazing these things are the machines the final cut and all of that and then this this team of I don't know who they are people uh, I mean there's an editor of Big Big Sky, a US TV series on ABC. Uh, like they have some big names, so at least yeah. at least a handful of these are actual big properties, and then a bunch of other people sign the petition. So I don't I don't know how to verify anything beyond that. Um, but I would say that uh, it's just an interesting concept that like Apple isn't doing enough when it seems like they spend a lot of time on these and they they push these products. Now, yeah, you don't see an ad on YouTube or CNN for Final Cut, but uh I don't think you would see that for professional video yeah. use cases anyway. So, yeah, to your point, I'm curious what it would mean. Now, Steven Sanders is one of the people that supposedly signed this petition. He's the editor-in-chief of the Fox TV series War of the Worlds, and he's saying the two big reasons that he's often not allowed to use Final Cut to edit the shows that he wants is collaboration, like I mentioned. But number two, he says that many professionals don't know how Final Cut works. Mm. They even regard it as just an iMovie Pro, not because that's actually what it is, but because they just don't understand all the features maybe behind the surface. And I will say that's one of the things where in Final Cut, if you use it, Apple does a good job of making it approachable, but that also means some of the more powerful features might not be readily visible. And so while advertising Final Cut, like in commercials or ads might not be what gets the professional market to use it. Maybe some kind of education directly from Apple for professional film and production houses could make it more accessible, kind of show them like, here are the pro tools that are behind the scenes. Well, Apple would say, have you heard of our sessions in Apple Store where you can get? No. Well, <laughs> no I think no. the odd the odd thing here is, is overall, if have you met a person who uses Adobe products? They don't want to use other products. So True. I don't know how much advertising Apple's going to be able, or like educating Apple's going to be able to do to convince people who are already ingrained in something else. Yes, Apple's product is different and requires a different skill set and learning over months of use of this tool to really get it down. Uh, and if people who have been using uh, Adobe's tool set for years and years are not going to look at Final Cut and think, oh, yeah, that's perfect for my needs uh, because, yeah, that's just not how th this stuff works. I, I think this is more of a just industry problem. Um, if you're if you're one of these people, obviously, like I'm, I'm speaking out of school, I don't know, but like generally the way these things work is, is if you want a specific tool in your job, you have to run it up the pole, right. explain why you want it and how it works and stuff like that. And it takes years for a, especially something like this, this big, making a TV show or a movie. Right. Uh, it takes years to transition from the old way to the new way. I don't, I don't know that this is really an Apple problem. I just thought it was, I just find the whole situation interesting. And, uh, and again, like I, I, I think these are very intelligent people. They know their industry. They know what they're doing. I just wonder what the end result would look like, like you said. Yeah. And I will say Apple is doing great work in Final Cut. There was a recent update, 10.6.2. We talked about it on last week's episode, but I've been using the voice isolation, which is a new feature in the latest version. It does a great job of cutting out background noise and even echo. I actually recorded in an echoey environment and the voice isolation feature works incredibly well, even on par with Isotope, which is an audio plugin that I've also used to do things like Dverb. And so Apple is definitely spending the time and updating it and making Final Cut more and more powerful as time goes on. 
So I mean, I'm not exactly sure what they could do. I mean, in the education world or whatever, but I would just say, I, I love it. And so if you are trying to get into video editing, I do think Final Cut is an incredible tool. And obviously the people who signed this petition love it also. All right, well, I wanted to touch right here on the end. I did a tweet about, hey, what's your current home screen? And it kind of blew up again. People love sharing their home screens. Actually, I had some Android users in the in the thread as well sharing theirs. I'll put Wes's tweet and my original tweet with the whole thread in the show notes if you want to check it out. Always interesting to see all the home screens, what apps people are using. So many really just using the stock and default apps on the iPhone. Some go super customizable, like they've customized their icons using shortcuts and the wallpaper, all of it. It's like super clean, super customized. So some of those are really nice. And just also interesting to see what widgets people are using. Lots of WhatsApp, you know, especially when you get some international users participating in something like that, you really see how WhatsApp is so de facto for a messaging application in other parts of the world. But I will say, you know, for my own home screen, it hasn't really changed much since widgets came out last WWDC. You know, I got a big weather widget and a smart stack underneath it on my home screen that has like my calendar and deliveries right there in a big widget. Then I have another four by four widget with things like podcast player and a couple shortcuts, things that I launched there. And that's kind of it. It's not super fancy. I didn't do icon customizations or anything like that. One thing I will say, I hope Apple betters widgets at WWDC, one, making them interactive where you don't have to jump into the app to make changes, but also making them more discoverable. I think apps will update and add widgets, but unless you actually launch the app or somehow go to the add widget screen and actually see new options there, kind of hard to discover what's new or what new widgets are available to you. So I think there could be better discovery there. I'm not sure how that could work, but I know you had a very customized home screen. I think you even got some custom icons going on. How do you have yours set up? First of all, I use focus modes uh, like a crazy person. So I have uh, focuses for sleep, work, uh, you know, personal, whatnot. And whenever it uh, focus mode is triggered, the home screen changes. And I only ever have one panel at a time. I, so in my screenshots, you'll see there's like six home screens. That's because each home screen is assigned to a focus mode. But when that focus mode is enabled, I only see one screen. Right. And so, for example, the personal screen, which is the first Im image of the three, uh, you'll see like different widgets. Those are all stacks too. I can swipe between different widgets, but these are the ones I just had showed for the uh, screenshot. Like cloud battery shows me uh, my battery levels of all of my devices connected through the same app. It's actually really, really handy. Yeah. It's a little glitchy. It doesn't always update properly, but it's still better than the alternative, which is just whatever device is connected to your phone at the time shows up in the battery widget, which is boring. And it also lets you customize what colors the rings are and what color the background is. So I was able to make it solid black to blend in with the uh, background. Same thing with Marvis. It's Apple Music Player. It lets you show what is currently playing in Apple Music. When you tap it, it'll take you straight to Marvis, or you can actually uh, go to Apple Music or what have you. It gives you customization options for changing the background. So I made that one also OLED black. And then uh, the Carrot Weather, Scriptable, same ideas. Scriptable showing a Pokemon in this one. Uh, I actually have a script that someone... I can't remember, uh, but someone pointed it out at some point. It's like, I made a script that'll just show you random Pokemon for a timer interval. So I customized, I went into the code because Scriptable is script. Right. And uh, so I went in there and made it update like every half hour, show me a different Pokemon and always keep the background black again to uh, match my wallpaper. And then the icons, this is tricky. Um, I don't remember the origin of any of them except for a couple that I've made recently, if only because I buy icon packs from websites uh, like Gumroad. Uh, people make custom icons, but I've actually been making my own as well. So like oh. you'll see um, the home thing. Someone made that house. I don't know who, but I took it into Affinity Designer, added a fill element, made a little orange and yellow field for it, and then exported it with a uh, black background and then used shortcuts to automatically open the home app when tapped and uh, added that icon as a custom icon as a bookmark to the home screen. So that's how you get that custom icon. <laughs> and when you tap it, right. it opens the home app and it shows a little slide down, which is annoying. It says, you know, open with shortcuts or whatever it says. And uh, yeah, it's, that's annoying. Safari <laughs> is actually a WebKit uh, official Safari logo. It's the black. I found that somewhere just by searching black Safari logo and it came up oh. and uh, just, you know, again, affinity designer threw a black background on there. I 
make my backgrounds a certain size to make them exact like the compatibility with uh, what a bookmark icon size should be 180 by 180 it's very small uh it's it's like 180 by 180 pixels the dock at the bottom that's always there even if you delete all of the icons so i decided to have just three icons i access a lot uh again custom went into affinity photo made my own colorways added sampled the dock color background and then made it the icon color background so they would blend in as well. There's no border around them, if, as you can tell. And that's the messages, photos, and Twitterific. But I used the Twitter logo and then customized it. Yeah. The Twitter icon, yeah. That is nice. <laughs> I will put the podcast chapter art. I'll put my home screen for the time I talked and then Wes's home screen for when he is. And if you're in your podcast player, you can look at the image for the chapter and you will see these home screens as uh, Wes and I talked about them. But it looks really clean. I do like that dock setup that you have. And I will also agree, focus modes, if you have not gotten into focus modes yet, I encourage you to try it out. I have several focus modes and I change my home screen based on what I'm focusing on and what work I'm doing. I have one called filming, which is really helpful because I have a home screen set up with kind of the apps I most use when I do like an iPhone tip or something, like the shortcuts app or something. And that home screen will automatically appear. It doesn't have any personal information on it when I'm gonna film it. So focus mode's really cool for that stuff, but also just day-to-day work, play, leisure. Create a home screen that doesn't have your email and Slack app on the home screen for the weekend or for when you're off. And when you throw it into that focus mode, you don't have to worry about just memory, like muscle memory, opening Slack and email on your day off. Yeah, now this stuff can get really, really customized. There's actually a lot of apps in the app store um, that you can get that help you do this. Uh, There's apps that'll automatically switch your wallpaper for you using shortcuts. Um, There's apps that will actually generate icons uh, for your apps and export it as like a zip file so that you can have a background wallpaper and then have matching icons that blend into the wallpaper of the background and it's insane uh, i've seen a lot of people do this with like anime stuff and like these really highly detailed uh backgrounds if you just search anything uh, twitter google whatever uh for custom ios backgrounds or custom ios icons you'll see a lot of examples of this popping up i, I like yeah. this can go as deep as you want it, it, it it's pretty wild i, I will say as a, as a closing comment yeah apple really should and ios 16 and ipad os 16 introduce either an app or a place in settings where you can do all of this in one place set the custom icons set the wallpaper yes. do all yes. of it without the you know finagling of shortcuts yes i agree well, listeners, feel free to tweet your home screen at us. Love to see what you got going on. Also, we had that special interview with Matthew Casanelli earlier this week, and I got one more special interview coming up next week. It was really good. It's already recorded. I'm just going to tease it here. So definitely tune in next week. Look at your podcast player. Well, you know, Monday morning. It'll be a cool interview there. Also, again, Wes and I's Twitter handles are in the show notes. Reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you listen there, you can give reviews there now as well. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.